0: a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together.
1: the call with Gino Borges and, excuse me, Erica Karp. Um, This is part of the Journey to Impact series where we've interviewed um, key impact investors in the impact investing space for the past two months, focusing on their personal journey to impact and how it's influenced their outward work and and their focus on what it means to be human in in this journey. And a lot of us uh, just see our front-facing personas and a lot of our public successes, but uh, there's also a part of us who are in the impact investing space that are often confused and trying to make decisions in the midst of fog and uh, doing our best. And a lot of this is to share uh, notes and best practices and to share the human journey. A lot of us come at this journey from different vantage points. Much, uh, uh, Some of us are just beginning the journey. Some of us are halfway through, or some of us don't even know where we're at. You know, in this process, it's been a very uh, successful series so far and continues to be. We opened up with uh, Jed Emerson and Joel Solomon and Danny Almagor and John Fullerton and Lori Meyercord, And uh, this upcoming Thursday is going to be Liesl Pritzer. And again, today our focus is on Erica Karp. Uh, Welcome, Erica.
0: It's a pleasure, Gina.
1: Just a little background on Erica. Erica is the founder and CEO of Cornerstone Capital. Uh, before she began as founder and CEO of Cornerstone Capital, she was managing director and head of global security research at UBS Investment Bank, and also as a founding member of the Sustainability Accounting and Sustain- Standards Board. And here's a funny one. It's because it's all these top 50 and top 100s. Uh, Erica, you're in a lot of top 50s and top 100s. (laughs) Amongst them, uh, top 50 women in wealth by Advisor One, uh, one of the 100 in the Purpose Economy 100, uh, also part of the top 100 of the good 100, and one of the 50 conscious capitalists who are transforming Wall Street. So I'm sure there's other top 100s that you're part of, you probably don't even know about. But um, I'd like to jump in on what, on what life looked like way before you even verbalize this word impact investing and, uh, you know, sort of take us back to um, that world before this evocation of consciousness. And then, and then we'll work our way to the evocation of consciousness.
0: Okay. So I'm, I'm going to take you way back to, you know, okay. Fair enough. So I'll, take, I'll take you way back to when I was like uh, five years old. And um, my dad was a lawyer and he did the securities work. And, um, you know, he was a very fine lawyer and uh, he cared a lot about people and um, very smart. And and um, there was one day I remember he was on the phone uh, with a client and they he, they were talking about some kind of deal or whatever. And I remember my father looked at me and, you know, he was in a, he was in a good mood and he, he showed me, put his hands up. You know, he said, you know, he said the stock market is so wonderful. It's so beautiful that on your word, you can do millions of dollars of business on your honor. And I just, I I always remembered that. And then, you know, from the time I was five years old, somebody would ask me, so what are you going to do when you grow up? And I'd say, I'm going to be a stockbroker. Now, I had no idea what a stockbroker was. But I knew that I'm going to be a stockbroker. And over the years, um, I learned, you know, the value of, of money as a, as a tool, as an instrument, and um, as something that, you know, helping people is honorable. Um, and so, again, over the years, I learned, I studied economics, and I studied uh, finance. And I really do think um, since then, I've always thought that capitalism, it can be beautiful. It can be good. And, um, and then when I went to college, I, I went to Wharton undergrad, and, um, and I read, um, you know, the, the the basic books that you read as an economics major, you know, Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. And I remember people would talk more recently about Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations and its, you know, its, its economics about maximizing profits. And, you know, and what i always remember is that before The Wealth of Nations, you know, Adam Smith wrote about the theory of moral sentiments. And um, and that's about, that's about people. It's really humanistic. And um, it, it, he talks about the extent to which people, like, care about the circumstances of other human beings. You know, and then you think about uh, him, and you think about traveling, and you think about globalization. And when I think of all the good stuff, about capitalism, you know, it's a bummer that Adam Smith didn't warn us about the negative externalities that happen in mm. capitalism. And so, you know, I think about those things a lot. And then when I, um, you know, I, I went to Wall Street, and, and again, this is now 25, 30 years ago, and, uh, and uh, most recently before founding UBS, um, excuse me, before founding Cornerstone, I was at UBS and I was uh, managing global uh, research. And so I got to see, you know, global industries and global economics and, and you know, the capital market structures. And, um, and when you think about other people, when you think about humanity uh, and you pay attention, you're attentive to what's going on, um, you realize, or I realized, that, you know, I can, I can use what I know about capitalism and the, the wonderful research organization that I had to um, to learn more, to understand those pivotal environmental, social, and governance factors that have to go in to the investment process. And so even but, but, though...
1: But, but, yeah, but I want to pause you there, Erica, uh, Erica, because I know conventional Wall Street and likely your training at uh, Wharton didn't, um, use, um, three-dimensional thinking about finance. I mean, at that particular period of time, it was very one-dimensional maximizing shareholder, uh, value. So sort of where did, um, your, um, um awareness of the limitations come into play and sort of the edge, um, like, um, and I'm guessing you lived with that edge for a while because it's not like you've experience limitations goes, I'm going to go start a firm. So right. sort of take us through that process where all of a sudden you're a woman, a Wall Street firm trained in one dimensionality, but yet you felt the limitations and you were living with those limitations and yet still doing the work in um, at Wall Street. So sort of take me through that chapter a bit. R- 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 see, um, I mean, rather than us glossing over it, I mean, there had to be okay. some of a moment where something was gnawing on you a little bit. I want to know what happened. Was there a specific room that you were in, a specific conversation, a specific deal that you recommended that you realize like, shit, nobody paid attention to the environment here and we just allocated X millions of dollars toward this particular funding.
0: So this is a great question. I'm gonna show my wife, the psychologist, this presentation, because you're good, you got it. Um, Actually, there wasn't a single moment, but I've always cared about people. I've always been sensitive and, and empathic to how stuff feels. And again, I I should mention, so I don't know if I told you this, but this is among the the first. I was the first um, out lesbian on a Wall Street trading floor. That was the first. And what I have to say is that was really, really hard at the time. We're talking about, you know, 25 years ago. Um, And so there were a lot of times I feel like in my life that I felt stuff that maybe was a little different. This is where diversity comes in. I felt that, that other people hadn't felt. I'll give you an example, and this isn't about sustainability, but um, I remember when I was at uh, my first year or two, I was at Credit Suisse before I was at UBS, and I was an institutional equity salesperson on the desk, and they were pushing me to pitch a deal um, that I actually, like I knew I had done a really good job on it, and they were kind of pushing me to go a little further in the ass than I otherwise thought I should. And I did. I pushed too hard. I went against my gut, and it was a mistake. So what I learned early on was I don't go against my gut, right? And then when you see something that's not quite right, you question it. You question it, and you know, you're you always walking the line. How hard do I question it? How hard do I push back? Um, but I remember it, there was one announcement at one of my former firms that a research analyst was now going to be reporting to the head of banking, and I'm like, wait a second, that's not okay. So I would always ask questions and look with an eye that was critical at things. And that's always what's made the difference. I remember I was with a um, a research analyst. Uh, I was taking her out to see a client. This was a very senior portfolio manager uh, in tech. And the analyst said something really interesting. And the portfolio manager's name was Peter I remember Peter looking up and he was like, I hadn't thought about that before. And I have to tell you, I actually got goosebumps. I'm like, oh, my God, I have learned about Peter's decision-making process. And so I learned that finding those really interesting questions that somebody hadn't thought about, well, that's that's great. And that, really, it, that kind of was the start of 25 years of looking for questions that people hadn't thought about. And that's what gets us to ESG, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not an, um, a semiconductor analyst's first you know, thought uh, to ask about water when a semiconductor company is putting up a $3 billion fab, but they have to ask about water, right? We know that. It's mm-hmm. not your first question um, of a shipping company to ask about the safety track record and their fuel economy, and that's up there. But probably more you're going to ask about pricing and revenues and all that. So ESG analysis, and, and again, this is what started it for me, is a matter of finding different questions that you have to pursue um, that don't come to mind first. And so all the externalities associated with you know, capitalism, you know, like you said, people weren't trained to look at them. Um, yeah. and i was fortunate enough that i started becoming trained uh, to look at them and then i hopefully i was part of training others and everyone to look at these things and then we can talk about the true cost of business and then we can talk about you know f- financial capital and human capital and natural capital all of them and so that uh, i think that desire to ask questions and to understand you know, the impact of investment decisions on the whole world, you know, that's pretty core to me, you know, and, um, again, maybe that comes from having some diverse
1: experiences. Sure. Can, how much has the, um, how much has you coming out like 20, 25 years ago as the first, you know, first lesbian to come out, how has that influenced your idea of what it means to bring your whole self to um you know the investing equation it's like you're looking at the whole investment now but how about the whole self like on the other side like i mean how has that really influenced um how you're approaching your day-to-day at this point i mean that might seem like a long time ago but i mean obviously we're uh cultures made headways with um sexual orientation but i mean still a long ways to go obviously but sort of Sort of contextualize it for what it means in the impact investing space and how it may have influenced and shaped how how, how you conduct yourself uh, today.
0: Well, you know, again, it's it's, the experience has influenced and shaped everything. And, you know, any given kind of lesbian who comes out, they're still just as diverse. They have their own issues. Um, So I was married to a man at the time when I figured myself out. And then I was with uh, the woman who became my wife. And I also have uh, three children, so you know I'm as different as you know any other lesbian as, as people are from each other. But I, I guess one of the big things is that you learn a lot about um, about respect. You learn a lot about um, about about self confidence. You know, I was, um, you know, being closeted takes up an enormous amount of psychic energy when you're changing pronouns, when you're, you know, making up stuff about where you were or where you weren't, you know, when you're, um, when you're genuinely worried about your career, your colleagues, your bosses, your clients, um, it takes up a huge amount of energy. And so it took me, it was probably a year long process between when I decided I'm coming out and, um, and when I actually did it. And, um, and in that process, you know, I had to kind of gear myself up um, to make sacrifices. And that's one thing about, you know, an understanding and, and real respect um, for LGBTQ, um, you know, rights. Um, it, there, it, there ha- it has to start from um, respect. It has to be um, in the corporate world. The company has to be willing uh, at times to make trade-offs and sacrifices. I'm not going to put, you know, a plant in Saudi Arabia because they won't respect human rights make decisions. But in any case, for me, it really, I, since I've been out, um, I have never been more, you know, creative or engaged or um, innovative or articulate. I mean, it's, it, I couldn't imagine not being out. Um, mm-hmm. But I do remember the stress of, of coming out.
1: You know, one day, not for this call, but I'll tell
0: you a fun story. Yeah, sure. <laughs> there, but yes, yeah, diversity
1: and... Yeah. yeah. And then how have I've, I I see, I mean, I've met your partner and I've met uh, one of your three kids. Um, she was in the office one day when I was there uh, visiting with you. Um, one of my um, interest is... Is as an impact investor is also understanding um, in creating impact families, meaning that it's not like this individual genome board just goes to an impact gathering and then I come back and report on it. But I sort of try to see my living with impact also as integrating my family into it. Take us through sort of how how they have been integrated, how they haven't, where like. How you wish it might be a little different, what you guys are working on, how you approach and how you you and your partner converse about it. And how do you talk about your work with your family and what level of interest and engagement do they have in what you're doing?
0: OK, so this is where it's, it's so wonderful. Um, I for me, my my personal life and my work life are are really very integrated. So we have the normal, you know, fights that families do. I work too hard. I travel too much. But there's some really great stuff. Sari is, as you know, Sari is a professional jazz singer and a clinical psychologist, right? So on the jazz singer side, you know, it's so interesting to learn from all over. Jazz is about, it's about collaboration, and it's about experimentation, and it's about respect. And it's about communication. I actually interviewed Sari for an article that we wrote called Jazz Inspired Finance. I'll, I'll show you the article after the call. But, you know, the best of jazz, the characteristics, like I just mentioned, are the same as the best of finance. So my point is I can find kind of inspiration like everywhere. And sometimes, you know, musicians, artists do not feel the kind of respect um, and certainly not the commercial appreciation that they should. And so sometimes in the sustainability world, we get to do stuff that fixes that. You know, the, the, the creative economy, investing in the creative economy, we actually write about it. We show examples of it. We, we do events around it. So that is, you know, me and Sarah completely combined. Um, when it comes to our children um, or, or the making of the children, um, our children, uh, are three different ways, single donor, but three different ways to make these babies. And mm-hmm. I remember, and this is when I was at UBS, that each time we had a baby, we would ask for a benefit that UBS was like, mm, I don't know if we do that. And then they said, we'll be back. And they came back and they said, yes. And I'm like, okay, will you pay for the sperm that we need to buy for me or whatever, but I'm not infertile. Will you cover it? Yes. We need to have maternity leave uh, for me, even though Sarah gave birth to the baby. That's okay, right? Yes. We need your adoption reimbursement payments because I um, have to adopt my own baby because we're in the state of New York. You're okay with that? And they're like, yes. And each time it was precedent, right? Each time there there was no rule. They didn't know. But each time they came back and said, yes. And so from the standpoint of, and that's, that's, you know, human rights, labor rights, and, you know, diversity and inclusion. Each time I was very fortunate to work at a company that made the right decision. So here, that's another very, you know, explicit example of how I bring the, the personal into the business. That's yeah. more than you figured you would get, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. So this jazz thing probably, I make a connection also to jazz and what what's like to start an impact advisory firm. Um, you know, again, uh, if you're just joining, this is Gino Borges along with Erica Carp, a CEO and founder of Cornerstone Capital and Impact Advisory Group. And um, yeah, sort of take us into that area of how jazz has shaped your insights into um, creating this impact advisory firm from scratch. I mean, it's not easy, um, obviously, I mean, by any means. And just sort of gives a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what it was like to say, I want to do this, and then after I want to do this, you know, the first couple steps and how jazz may be a framework to, to understand that journey a little bit. So that's,
0: that's really interesting to think of it again. So we said with jazz, experimentation, um, communication is a back and forth as it relates to respect and collaboration. And I guess some of the things that I just said maybe are not well, not maybe they are not um, present to the degree to the degree that they should be should should be in large institutions. And so, with the founding of Cornerstone, it, it is it was very progressive. It is a very progressive model. It breaks down the silos on traditional Wall Street. It breaks down silos between um, investment banks and asset managers and asset owners, and it brings um, transparency, and it basically transforms, um, you know, the, the existing kind of norms. So progressive jazz is about, you know, experimentation and making something Beautiful and making something that people can feel, you know, and when it comes to getting people to feel and, and knowing that you can align um, people's values and their priorities and their aspirations with their finances, with their assets, you know, that feels great and that's progressive and you need to know how to do it well. And so in, in founding the company, you know, we brought together some of the best pieces of the capital markets and turned it into something that I think is transformational um, in the capital markets. Kind of a, um, a platform uh, for growth and, and um, a platform to turn something um, into you know, different pieces into something beautiful like jazz.
1: And where do you guys, um, like, who is it that you um, help? And, I mean, where is your firm currently at in, is he, is he, I mean, in the process of its experimentation?
0: Right. Um, so, again, when you're building a new firm, a highly regulated firm, you know, it takes a while. So you you find the people, the pieces that you need. That took us about a year and a half and you're building your back office capability you're building your front office reporting capability you're getting your sec registration Mm -hmm. um, and you're getting all the pieces together to uh, figure out the advisory proposition uh, that you want to create and then it's an ongoing you know process Uh, so cornerstone uh, we advise some individuals and families and foundations Uh, we have about a a billion one in assets under management and you know we're going to continue evolving that business, and so we can figure out how to scale uh, impact investing. We want to figure out how to really democratize impact investing, give access, you know, to the whole world um, to the kind of investing that's really progressive and is going to make a difference, um, you know, to achieving whether you want to call it the sustainable development goals or personal aspirations of our clients. Um, but it will be an ongoing experiment And our job is to kind of lead the way and stay ahead of things. Um, An example of that is our new um, access impact framework, which is, again, our um, uh, vision of how do you report on people's social impact uh, given their portfolios. Access to us is the
1: key. I see. And, I mean, how are you guys going to um – you know I mean, a lot of us from the outside don't understand really what's happening in the advisory world, but um, we read articles about robo advising and um, etFs and index funds. How are advisors going to stay um, relevant in you know five, ten, fifteen years from now with I mean artificial intelligence and these algorithm you know these algorithms that really can satisfy a lot of the um, sort of check a lot of boxes, in essence, like, how's Cornerstone going to sort of carve out itself uh, a moat, per se, in an advisory world that's largely being commodified? At least, I mean, that's sort of my high-level high, high level view of what's happening.
0: No, that's a fair view, and it's very challenging, and we're seeing huge pressures. That said, I believe there will always be um, part of the, the world, part of the asset owner world, that will need of genuine human advice and thought and reasoning. Um, what I would tell you is that I believe that there are two things in life that don't become a commodity. One is ideas, new ideas, and the second is relationships. So to me, everything else, yes, becomes a commodity, but the idea of relationships, and ideas, not so much. And so when I think of our new Access Impact Framework, this is a framework that's intended to kind of bring humanity back to the idea of impact and sustainability. Because if you think about the Sustainable Development Goals, these 17 big, audacious goals, that's great, but they're uninvestable. So it takes human beings to think about, okay, how do we get to that? And yes, you can do that with AI and machine learning, but the core of it still is a human sensibility. So what we do is we think, okay, is there a single common denominator around the sustainable development goals? And the only thing that we could think of that a denominator for all of them is the idea of access. So if you don't have access to water, you're dead. If you don't have access to food, you're dead. If you don't have access to uh, capital, you're not going to scale a solution. If you don't have access to uh, broadband, well, you don't have access to education, right? So access, access, access. That's where it's about. And so when we sit down with a client and we say, look, let's talk about what you care about most. And then if we take those sustainable development goals and use that access as a roadmap, what are the access? Points that industries give you, that different companies give you, that different portfolios give you, and we're going to be able to show you. We'll show you a heat map for where your values align via the idea of access with your portfolio. And now, what should we do? And when we talk about this again, it's very human. It's not. It's not just analytical. Um, and so we think you need both. And if you can't move people you can't move money and we're trying to move money for impact so um i'm sorry that was a little well i mean off, this
1: idea, i mean th- i mean uh, this idea of access can you sort of walk us through how it's relevant to um the products and services that um, you find yourself aligning with like i mean how do you sort of suss out um the degree of access because i'm guessing you look at it on a continuum basis. Um, and just sort of wondering a little bit more. I mean, not too many people talk about access as the way into these, um, 17 categories. Maybe you can sort of flesh that out a little bit more about just a real sort of tangible example of like, I'm a client. And then how, like, I mean, how does access sort of play out in those conversations? Okay,
0: cool. This is great. So again, client by client, we know what they care about. And then let's say we have a client who says, okay, I really care about the oceans and the health of the seas and the health of uh, life below water. Um, I, think, so I think that's uh, SDG 14, but it's not in front of me. Anyway, so we know a client cares about that. right? so we go to our framework and say, okay, SDG, I think it's 14, what gets you there? And what are the things that are necessary to have healthy life below the seas? And then you go back and you look at the other SDGs and you're like, oh, look at number, again, I think it's 12, it's not in front of me right now, but look at number 12, which is about kind of the circular economy, um, plastics and recycling and manufacturing process. Ah, so you went to one of these big SDGs, then you got to one that is more investable, more clear, and then we go and we find products and funds that are serving that different SDG than the one you said you were interested in. So you have to know what the connections are. You have to know the nexus issues, and you have to know, uh, and then you have to have product. You have to have companies and fund managers that are addressing, you know, that recycling one, right? Yeah. Or the the closed, the closed loop uh, type economy. So it, it's a matter of playing around with the connections, and the way we use playing around is through the idea. Of access yeah so and it's our it's our roadmap to get us to each of the SDGs to align with clients and then obviously we diligence the hell out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of managers to take a look at their holdings to see yeah. what kind of access that manager is giving to a particular uh, SDG is that is that helpful
1: yeah yeah for sure Now, I mean where do you sort of um... Like, um, I know that the idea of, in fact, I think people sort of repeat it ad nauseum without being reflective, and they've just normalized the language of that impact investment is measurable, blankety, blank, blank, blank. And so, I mean, they use the word measurable without, like, perhaps maybe because it just feels safe and secure. And so Mm -hmm. I know that there's a certain amount of measurement where does measurement begin and then where does its limitations start to emerge Um, and where does it uh, actually choke out um, more expansive ways of sort of seeing um, impact right so
0: it's a great question and um, there's a it depends on where measurement (laughs) begins and you know again that's my economics (laughs) training It, it depends um, to me, the idea of you can't um, you can't measure something that you don't know what it is you want to get to, right? So first you have to say, okay, here's my objective, and then I can figure out how am I going to measure it. So the objective has to come first, and so when people kind of throw it out there, it's measurable. Like against what? For what? So first comes the objective, right? The um, the intentionality, as it were, right? And then, if you're really lucky, you know you might want and get some additionality in your impact investment. Um, so you're going to want to measure that too. But at least it gives you an objective. Now, here's the second part of your question: the measurability. Um, if we're looking at kind of hard metrics, um, is problematic because the data out there from corporate disclosures on material factors or even not. Material factors, the data is really poor quality still. I mean, we're getting better at that with standards for disclosure, uh, with the SASB and, and the work of uh, GRI, but the reality is the quality of the data still remains weak and not comparable and not, um, you can't really make projections off it. Um, so we have a problem. So if you try to give a hard number for some measure of something, like I'll pretty much guarantee that you're wrong. Right. So if somebody says, "Okay, you're going to uh, uh, create um, a million liters of of water and this is going to affect uh, ultimately the GDP of some nation by X. Again, it's going to be wrong. So I would rather see a concerted effort to move towards uh, the idea of measurement while we know the objectives um, that we're looking for. So Mm -hmm. I'm not waiting for the perfect. We all know what Aristotle said. Um, With regard to our measurable, our measurement system, we are admitting and we're not trying uh, to get perfect data out of what's out there um, on public ratings and rankings and data. We're saying, okay, here's our objective on behalf of our clients, and we're going to have a really strong roadmap so we can start getting there. So ours is like um, a mental. You know, it's kind of, it's part qualitative and part quantitative mm-hmm. um, it, with a reasonable structure for how to do it. We are not pretending to have accurate data. And by the way, it is, I would argue, thinking about access um, is just a much more humanistic approach yeah,
1: I than, agree. Um,
0: you know, than telling us, you know, how many, um, you know, how much carbon emissions we've, you know, delayed. So, I, um, so I'm so i a little not resigned, but I'm a little like, I'm not waiting uh, until we yeah. get
1: perfect data forward. That's a really great response. I, I mean, I think there's a particular article for you guys in that, um, in that, because, I mean, I think that's a very, uh, nuanced yet, um, communicatively available to people to understand. Um, yeah, that, but I think that there's, um, we haven't gotten there as a space yet, but i really like your idea of access as as a humanistic lens. And then it's sort of, it's part of the objective. um, But I like the idea of starting off with the objective, um, understanding where the quantitative sort of begins and ends. And yet it's sort of like the massaging happens with the access. And then um, you sort of get at, I've been thinking about it. Are are we trending in a certain direction? I or do we need to know everything down to the third decimal point? Like, I mean, I think if the impact space can just get really comfortable and hold itself responsible for trending in a certain direction, rather than going down to the third decimal point, I think that we can stay out in front, um, uh, you know, of the movement, and we can capture more of the expanding universe that way. Mm-hmm as opposed to sort of the mindset of wanting to take appropriate the one dimensional tools, the reductionist tools. Um, so I mean, I'm really, i glad that, um, you guys are really articulating that in that way. And it, I mean, it really has me thinking about, um, sort of another issue that's related is this idea, the connection between sustainability and growth, um, on the surface it seems sort of contradictory. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how, how you have come to sort of grips and sort of manage these terms that we use in impact investing space and then the rea- the geopolitical realities of the larger economy. And then sort of yeah. find like, um, uh, like, um, I mean, how do you sort of like sort of box and weave and dance with this idea of a, an obsessive growth mentality on a geopolitical level? Um, and yet, at an impact level, we still use that language because there's our financial values are still tied to economic growth. And yet, sometimes it really cuts into sustainability if we were authentic and genuine about it.
0: This is, this is I love this discussion because this is about the markets and how the markets and, you know, sustainability um, are, are tied in, and they are. The big issue is timing, all right? To be, and by the way, sustainability is not enough. We need we need to go beyond sustainability. We need to be regenerative. We need to be inclusive. And so, if you go back to economics, um, it's tricky with regard to some things because there's always a debate. You know, we believe that um, income inequality and wealth inequality is a drag on economic growth over the long term. We believe that globalization and global trade. Is additive to economic growth over the long term, right? We believe that diversity is just an absolute imperative for economic growth, right? So, so we have these fundamental views, and you take those and you apply them to whatever else you're doing. But the time frame does matter. So, for instance, um, when we talk about uh, market structures, right, and people talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, short-term trading or statistical arbitrage, or anything like that. People say, that's terrible. And there are people in sustainability that say, that's terrible. Or people talk about derivatives, and some sustainable investors are like, that's terrible. Well, let me tell you something. Both those examples of market structure realities, I don't think there's anything wrong with them, unless they undermine the structure and the operations of the markets. Then there's a problem, then you need regulation, right? But just by virtue of some people being you know short-term traders, that's okay. The reason I use those examples is because you know we're talking about economics and capital markets and I think it's it's good um, to sometimes separate value judgments right and make it practical. Again, I, I spent a lot of years almost being subversive to talk about issues of ESG of sustainability to mainstream analysts, that didn't want to think about stuff that was ideological or divisive or politicized. So you talk about fundamentals. And when it comes to the stuff that we all know is critically important among the ESG factors um, to companies' long-term behavior, you know, that's how you can feel that even if someone's going against you, you know, you've got your principles, you've got your views of how the economy and how markets work. Let me give you something else that to me is a perfect example of a, in my view, political and economic mess up, right? I think that, um, I don't want to talk about politics much, but Obama should have gone after infrastructure as a huge policy, the biggest thing he should have gone for, because the word infrastructure, it is not political, it's not divisive, it's, you know, it engages everybody, and A great infrastructure program would have been incredibly stimulative economically and by virtue of technology, it would have been built out in a much more sound way, you know, in terms of sustainability, right? The new installations are more sustainable. We've got the technology, you know, we do have the capital to do what we need to do to have a sustainable or even regenerative economy, We just don't have the force of will, and we don't have the political, um, I guess, um, again, the political force of will, again, to do it. But, um, yeah, for me, still, with sustainability, economics, simultaneous. It's not one or the other. It's a matter of understanding what you're doing, um, and it's a matter of of conviction.
1: Can you articulate the difference between uh, sustainability versus um, regenerative?
0: So with sustainability, what's
1: what's the word?
0: We can sustain. You know, we can keep doing this. Well, with where the world is right now, if we keep doing this, we're dead. We're screwed. And by the way, you know, the earth really doesn't give a damn about whether or not human beings are here, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we're in this, right? So we're in the sixth great extinction. We're losing thousands of species a year. And when's it going to be human beings, right? So the Earth doesn't care. So if we keep going on, sustaining what we're doing, you know, we're done. And so regenerative—I mean, that's a big aspiration. And um, well, you had John Fulton on here, so he would have, you know, more to say than I do, you know, intelligently about this. But we are talking about major systems change. So it's even beyond. Well, hopefully it's not. The idea of the circular economy, systems change, right? That's what gets us towards, you know, being able to give back, you know, and not just extracting, which is where we are now. One day, we don't even have to have the concept of waste, right? That's Mm -hmm. where we can get to. And and that's like super exciting. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime, But it is a nice aspiration, you know, and when I talk about the humanity, you know, um, to to capitalism and to finance and to investing, you know, it's one of the reasons we really do, you know, think that access is the way it makes people feel what they can give back. Mm. So it's not just I give my money, I get a return and that's the end of it it's i invest my money i get a financial return and look what i am trying to give to the world
1: you know i see i mean how are so you helping I, I mean how are you helping people get to the feeling part i mean like i mean what do you do practically to get people to feel
0: mm-hmm. so here's here's what you have to watch for it and you have to have this is why you know, the ETFs and AI and all these other things out there, you know, this is why I don't think it'll ever entirely replace an advisory proposition. When you're with someone, when you're sitting there, there there is energy. There are signals. There is learning. And that's how it goes to feeling. And this is the whole thing about kind of the next generation of wealth. They'll be damned if they sit there and talk to somebody that there's no authenticity and no feeling, you know, and no kind of urgency. Um, that's not how, it's not what people ultimately are going to want, you know? So again, you sit there with someone and um, sometimes people, um, investors don't actually even know what they want themselves, you know? But you start sure. to see, um, you start to see energy. You start to feel energy around something that you're talking about, you look for the heat, you know, and and we found with access that it is it's resonating with people, and so you know, and yeah, I, I, I don't think there's an answer to how you make people feel, but you know, again, here's where my wife, the psychologist, reminds me that I need to do active listening and I need to be empathic, so I, you know, I do my yeah. best.
1: Yeah. And uh, I mean, let's take that feeling into the impact space. I mean, what really makes the impact space um, unique besides um, considering externalities like social and governance and environment and so forth? But um, what have you noticed as the difference between the kinds of people that tend to gravitate and gather with impact intentionality versus the kinds of people that gravitated toward your previous investment banking experience?
0: You know, the fun part I can tell you is, you know, these days in like six months or a year, I make more friends every six months or a year than I did in 25 years. Right. And so I think what's cool about our discipline is that you you kind of almost immediately know that you're meeting someone who's kind of aligned in their sensibilities to you. Mm-hmm. So right away you have stuff that connects you. Um so I think that's the biggest thing that it's an early connection it doesn't take as long to kind of feel and suss somebody out in terms of their priorities. I mean it's almost the opposite of mainstream Wall Street. So you meet someone on a trading floor in New York and you kind of kind of assume they're probably an asshole. Right? <laughs> Excuse me. But in our discipline, you meet someone and you find out what they're interested in, and you're like, "Oh, good, okay, let's go." So what that means is that relationships are built even faster, which is why the the discipline and those of us in it yeah. can accelerate the the you know the 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 impact, frankly. So again, that's another thing that's emotional.
1: Yeah. Where do you see it, um, the space and the discipline evolving, uh, you know, five to ten years from now? What does the space look like? Okay.
0: Um, You know, hopefully we'll have seen the the quality of the data uh, dramatically improve. Hopefully we will have um, kind of uh, uh, aligned along um, uh, the idea of the data reporting and the form of it and the nature of it. Um, hopefully, people will. Um, purism, in this case, I think is not helpful. So there are those in, in impact investing. Pure, yes. So there are those in impact investing who I think may be purists in the context of you can only do impact with uh, private equity, private deals. Now, I, I don't believe that personally. I think you can get impact from everywhere you have that intentionality, right? And so I think we'll see that the purists maybe come around because if we're going to move kind of the the quantum of capital, the trillions, we need the public equity markets and the private markets as well. Um, So I think you'll see that. Uh, With regard to the language, hopefully we'll see uh, language that is, um, uh, you know, more pragmatic and analytical than ideological. Um, One day, you know, we won't have to have impact and sustainability and double bottom line values, it's just investing. And so I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's just investing. I also hope that we can sidestep some of the risks that are going on right now, right? So we're in a place where, you know, there is a bunch of greenwashing in places. There is uh, the introduction of a huge number of so-called sustainability or impact products problem with that is they're not vetted to the same degree sometimes it is just marketing sometimes it's purposeful sometimes it's not but there is the risk of frankly bad uh, product being introduced and that potentially undermines everything we're trying to do so we're at a risky point here Uh, so we have to sidestep that and Mm -hmm. diligencing managers again is what we do all day long and it's it's really important um But again, we'll be at a place, hopefully, where this is what people do. And hopefully firms like mine can keep kind of moving the ball forward in terms of, you know, both qualitative and and quantitative aspects of sustainable investing.
1: Just curious, when talking to multiple generations, like when when you're speaking to families, do you notice any key distinctions between uh, millennials uh, versus, um, you know, um, I mean, the elder generation in the same families, and sort of take us through what what you're seeing trending. I mean, what kinds of what difference in questions are are they asking? Um, and just sort of their general viewpoint of the world?
0: So what, there's there dramatic differences between the generations. If it's third or second or you know first, very different. Um, what we're seeing in the older generation is still, a high level of skepticism if you can invest both for competitive financial returns and social impact. So Mm -hmm. high level of skepticism still. In the younger generations, you're feeling, this is what makes it it, it good for me. You're feeling the urgency. It's great. So they're Mm -hmm. pushing the urgency through. They're demanding the authenticity. Um, They are very knowledgeable and educated about what's out there. They are very uh, cynical about the kind of heritage, legacy investment banks and the large kind of wirehouses, which is understandable. Yeah. Um, they are working very hard to bring the older generation along in terms of what has to happen in the world, right? And so it, it's a big, it's a quite a different conversation. Um, we are seeing in the in the good situations that the older generation is giving more and more kind of control to the younger generation. Um, and they're starting to be, at least the, I think the, the smart ones, are starting to be um, willing to be educated. You know, this is an interesting thing at, at big investment firms and the big investment banks and wealth managers. The older executives don't think they have anything to learn from the younger executives. That is just stupid. You know, and when I think about my little one, the one you met, Molly, who's 11, I have so much to learn from my 11 year old. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. So I think this, the most engaged families realize that the younger generation has a lot to teach them. Um, and because it's a different world, you know? Um, uh, you know be- between you know uh, social media and big data, their brains are different, they just are. And they're faster and they're smarter and, uh, and they're more demanding and that's okay. So yes, it's still quite a different conversation for us. It's 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 helpful that you know Cornerstone is half mainstream, you know Wall Street, and half really the sensibility of of, of impact and um, and social consciousness. So it works out. And if you bring well families, families.
1: if you bring them all in together, like you actually um curate and psychologize the um the gatherings or are you speaking to them individually like i mean typically how does that play out a little bit and i mean where do you feel like your gifts are in that experience and then where like where do you really want to learn more about like man i'm just not i'm just not picking this up as much as i want to
0: we have to do both and in some cases you can see that that older generation they're just, they're just not going to get it, yeah. you know? And even if they let the youngins, like, go, they themselves – you have to figure out when there's not even a chance of openness uh, to get it. And then you don't spend that much time. A lot of the advising we do is uh, with the whole family. And then, you know, everyone knows families are different and complicated. And so sometimes you're with the whole. Sometimes you're with parts. Sometimes they're telling you stuff that the others don't know, you know. But, uh, sure. But really, we have to we have to do everything. And and you know what's really gratifying? I'll give you an example. Uh, we were with a family, and um, they thought that their their biggest interest was climate, climate change, and, and solutions. And so we're talking and talking. This is a whole day facilitation. And as we're talking, you know, we're taking notes, and you see what subjects come up a lot in the conversations. And I don't think they they didn't even realize it, but the subject of you know gender equality gender equity it came up a lot in almost like every conversation over hours and we said to them like do you realize you know a lot of we're talking about relates to, to gender globally is, is that something you want to you know want to delve into we yeah can do that and they were like oh my god i mean they were like delighted they had no idea it's like that very first conversation i had you know 30 years ago with an investor who said oh Hadn't thought about that. So um, those are the conversations that are really, um, uh, you know, satisfying as an advisor. You
1: know. Nice. Hi, this is Chino Borges again with Erica Karp. Um, Erica, would you like to um, see? I mean, any last words that uh, you'd like to share about your uh, journey to impact before we close it out?
0: So I have to tell you the last thing that I would say. Is I after you know 30 years on Wall Street, I feel like a kid in a candy store. You know, I have more energy. I am, you know, um, I'm I'm optimistic, even th- though things look really, really dreadful. Um, I'm still optimistic, um, and I'm having a ball. I'm having a ball.
1: You are. I agree. i um, I see. Um, I mean, I see you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I see you everywhere. Uh, good deal. Well, thank you, everybody. And thank you so much, Erica. We'll be sharing uh, the auto recording and a transcript here shortly with everybody. Um, and, a lot, and that transcript and those audios, uh, recordings tend to get read and heard um, long after the present moment of today. So again, thanks so much, Erica. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.